we know all too often we harden our hearts against you. And so, Heavenly Father, we pray that by the sword of your Spirit, your Word, would you break through any kind of defenses that we built up? Will you help us to see you more clearly for who you are? To see us more clearly for who we are? And most of all, to see your Son clearly for who he is and what he has done. So may your Holy Spirit be working powerfully through your word this evening. We pray all this in Jesus' most precious name. Amen. Now let me begin today by reading to you part of a letter from a father to his children. Uh, It can be found on your outline as well if you want to follow along. It's part of a letter from a father to his children. And he writes this. Even though you cannot see me, I will always be watching you. Obey your mother and do not trouble her. When you grow up, follow a path you like and grow to be fine Japanese persons. Do not envy the father of others. Since I will become a spirit and closely watch over you too. Both of you study hard and help out your mother with work. I cannot be your horse to ride. So you too, be good friends. Now I'm sure you can probably work out some of the circumstances just from reading that letter. You probably conclude that the writer's Japanese and he thinks that he's not going to see his children again. So he's writing his last words to them. And it probably strikes a chord with you somewhat, especially if I'm guessing, uh, if you are a father here yourself. But what if I gave you some more of the historical context? What if I told you that this is written by a Captain Kuno, who was a kamikaze pilot during World War II? What if I told you that his children were five and two years old at that time, and that he wrote in katakana, which is the simplest of all the Japanese scripts? What if I told you that he wrote this on the eve of his suicide mission? Now I think the letter will resonate with you even more because you have the historical context. Now, you didn't need the historical context to basically understand and appreciate the letter, but it certainly enriches your understanding and appreciation. Now, people sometimes don't realize that the superscription, that is the part in capitals at the beginning of Psalm 51, right? Uh, most people don't realize that the superscription at the beginning of the psalm are part of the Bible. So it's good that Leonard read it. You see, the bold headings there are not. So where you see that in your church Bibles, where at the top of Psalm 51 it says, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Well, that has been added there by the publisher to help us read it better. But it's not part of the Bible. But the superscriptions are. And the superscription here functions as a historical context for this psalm. It helps us to understand and appreciate even more of this psalm when we read it. And so we read, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Now if I say, when Bill Clinton went into the Oval Office with Monica Lewinsky, or if I say, when the MCA president went into the hotel room with a lady, then I think that's enough for most of you to know immediately what I'm talking about. And this superscription here is meant to trigger our memory 
of what happened to King David, which is recorded for us elsewhere in the Bible in 2 Samuel 11 to 12. And it's a sad, sad affair. You see, during the time when David was meant to be leading his nation at the front lines as they waged war against the Ammonites, he was at home, relaxing in his palace. When all Israel went out to battle, Israel's leader was being a couch potato. And from his rooftop, he saw a beautiful woman bathing. Before you know it, he was coveting his neighbor's wife, and then he steals her. If you read the account in 2 Samuel 11, it says that he takes her as if she was an object. And then he commits adultery with her, and finally it ends with the murder of her husband. How many of the Ten Commandments has the king broken already in this one episode? And at first it seems that David manages to cover it up. Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, dies on David's orders. David marries Bathsheba and the child that came about from that one night stand, well, is adopted. And maybe David thought that it would end there and then. It was unfortunate to be sure, but but these things happen, don't they? Uh, What king or what politician doesn't have a skeleton in his cupboard? But no skeleton of sin can be hidden away so easily. Even if there's no public scandal, even if there's no one to expose it, even if we manage to continue with our lives knowing that the skeleton is safely tucked away in the cupboard, Well, the skeleton is there. We can keep doing our jobs, going to church, going to Bible study, saying our prayers, maybe even preach a sermon. But the skeleton is still there in the cupboard. And you can't get rid of the stench, the smell. You might feel choked by the stench. You might learn to live with the stench. But you can't get rid of the skeleton no matter how hard you try. You can't cover up your guilt. You need that stench to be washed away. David learned that lesson eventually. God sent the prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel 12 who confronts him in a dramatic way with his sin. And it is in the wake of that confrontation that this psalm is written. And this psalm, spoken to God by David, has now become for us the word of God spoken to us. The great theologian John Calvin, he used to say of the psalms of David, here we have a mirror in which each of us see the motions of our own souls. In the psalms we have a mirror in which each of us see the motions of our own souls. It is a psalm for those of us with skeletons in the cupboard. It is a psalm for those of us who bear the stench of guilt. It is a psalm for those of us who have things in our past to cover up. In other words, it is a psalm for all of us, people who need to be cleansed and washed from our sin. Now, a psalm is poetry, not a strictly logical argument. As such, although I think there is a progression from verse 1 to the end in verse 19, we might not necessarily move from verse 1 all the way to verse 19, 
in the same way we might when we read one of Paul's letters. Instead, we're going to jump around a little bit more, as you expect in poetry. And I want to look at five phrases in particular, just to help us grasp this psalm. These are phrases from the psalm itself. And I pray that as we look at this psalm together, that this psalm will so grip you and so grip me as well. That by, this, by the end of our time together, this isn't just David's prayer, but ours as well. So let's look at the first phrase. Look at verse 3 with me. For I know my transgressions. I know my transgressions, David says. Straight away, David faces up to reality. No playing games. No beating around the bush. He comes clean. He admits his sin. He could have argued theology. He could have said, oh, it's okay, I just have to offer a few sacrifices and God and I will be buddies again. You know, it's not such a big deal. Or he could have pointed out the circumstances. Oh, she was so beautiful. Come on, I'm a guy. What guy can resist? He could have appealed to his feelings. How could it be so wrong when it felt so right? Or he could have played the blame game. Well, well, she started it. Why was she bathing in the open in the first place? Uh, it, it was consensual. Well, why blame me? Or he could easily have just called for a press conference and said, if I ever let the nation of Israel down, I deeply regret it. Now that would be a clever way to apologize without truly taking personal responsibility of his own sin, wouldn't it? That would not be true confession. Or he could have said, mistakes were made. And that would be a clever way to acknowledge that something has gone wrong without admitting that you are the one who's done wrong. That's not true confession. Or he could have said, my sincerest apologies to everyone who's been offended by this. And that would be a clever way to apologize and yet pin the blame on someone else. I'm sorry, but it's you who's offended. That would not be true confession. And we have an equally large variety of excuses to choose from, don't we? Well, it's because of the way my parents brought me up. It's because we are such a lousy and corrupt government. It's because of how my brain is wired. It's because of my introverted personality. It's because of how, how expensive those original DVDs are. I think one key indicator that we are making excuses is when we use the word, but. I'm sorry, but what about the other person? I, I confess, Lord, but, but you have to understand. I, I couldn't resist. David will have none of it. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Five times in the first three verses, he uses the pronoun my. My transgressions. My iniquity. My sin. This is not just self-pity. This is not just remorse. This is true confession. And notice the words that David uses. 
transgressions, verses 1 and 3. Iniquity, verse 2, verse 5, also there in verse 9. Sin, verse 2, verse 3, verse 5, verse 9. Evil, verse 4. He doesn't fall back on politically correct words or the vocabulary of psychology. It is not just a mistake or an error or a blunder. It's, it's not just a slip-up, a misjudgment or a miscalculation. The range of words that David uses here hits harder than that. He's talking about missing the mark, missing the goal. He's saying the same thing as Apostle Paul when he says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He's talking about transgression, that is, about crossing the line with open defiance. It's just like when someone says, don't press the button, and you have this immediate desire just to press the button. Uh, that's what it means to transgress, to defy. He's basically saying to God, get lost, I'm in charge. He's using a word, iniquity, that means intentional corruption, intentional perversion, intentional twistedness. It's to take what is good and make it bad. Those are the words David uses. He sees clearly what he has done. Now, sin wears many kinds of masks. Think about it. Gossip might wear the mask of concern. Fear of man might wear the mask of servant-heartedness. Spiritual pride might wear the mask of a love for God's word. And sometimes we allow ourselves to be blinded by sin's mask. We don't call sin, sin. But when we soften our hearts to the Holy Spirit and allow his word to unmask us, we will see clearly sin for what it is. When Nathan confronted David with a word from the Lord, David confessed in 2 Samuel 12 verse 13. He says that, I have sinned against the Lord. God's word enabled David to see clearly for himself his sin. It enabled him to know his transgressions. And I challenge you today to allow God's word to unmask us, you and I, to help us to see our sin and transgression and iniquity for what it is and to call it that. And sin is ultimately Godward in nature. Were you shocked by verse 4? Verse 4. Against you, you only God, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Oh, hang, hang on a moment. You only? But David, he has clearly sinned against Bathsheba, hasn't he? He's abused his power as king to sleep with her. He has clearly sinned against Uriah by throwing his life away as if it was nothing. He has clearly sinned against the nation by failing to be the leader that they need him to be. But David declares, against you, you only God have I sinned. 
What's going on here? Now, I don't think David is saying that he has sinned against all those parties. Not sinned against all those parties. What he is saying is that ultimately, in sinning against all those parties, he has sinned against God. He's not playing down his sin against others, but he is playing up his sin against God. You see, when he sleeps with Bathsheba, he is ultimately violating God's good design for marriage. When he kills Uriah, he's actually seizing God's right to give and take away life. And he shows no respect for the image of God in man. When he fails to lead the nation, he's not taking seriously God's mandate for him to be the human king of his people. In God's world, any violation of God's word is injury to God himself. And that is so important. So often in our confession of sin, we only think in terms of ourselves. We, we get angry with ourselves. We say, I, I should have known better. I, I could have done better. I, I, I let myself down. Or maybe we say, I, I let others down. But if we really want to come to terms with our guilt and our sin, then we must not just consider how sin has affected me. We must not just consider how sin has affected others. We must also consider how sin has affected God. And that will open our eyes to see just how serious sin is. You know, so often we compare ourselves to others, don't we? Have you ever come to the end of a sermon and thought, oh, I'm so glad that so-and-so was here because he, and she, he or she really needed to hear that message? Well, there's the story of the Sunday school teacher who was warning all her kids about the dangers of the Pharisees. And then she ended by saying, well, let's now thank God that we are not like those self-righteous Pharisees. But our standard of comparison is not others. God himself. And we have fallen short of his standards. Which brings me to our second phrase. Have mercy on me, O God. Can you see that in verse 1? Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. When we recognize that our sin is not just an offense against others, but against God himself, then we can only plead, have mercy on me, have mercy on me. Just look at verse 4 again. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Alongside David's confirm, uh, confession is an affirmation of God's justice. God is the person to whom we are ultimately accountable. I was quite challenged actually when I was just looking at verse 4. Because while we so often try to justify ourselves, here David is actually justifying God. He's actually saying, God, I agree with your judgment of me. You have been shown to be absolutely fair. I cannot complain even a single bit. God is not like earthly rulers and judges who all too often abuse their own power for their own personal benefit. The judge of the universe has 100% integrity. 
integrity. And that in itself is a good thing. But that means we can't go to God full of ourselves. We can't go to God based on our track record. We can't go to God on the basis of our church attendance, our moral reputation, our earthly successes, our spiritual successes, our acceptance by others. Just look at David. David could have pointed to his earlier trust in God when he defeated Goliath. Or he could have highlighted his refusal to take revenge on his predecessor's soul, even when he was being hunted down like a dog. But they're not enough. God does not have selective memory. He can see our entire past, so that he can not only see the medals that we show him, but the skeletons in our cupboards too. He sees everything that we've ever done, and his judgment is absolutely reliable. And since God is the one who brings about judgment, he is the one we go to for mercy. Look at verse 1 and 2 again. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. David knows that he does not deserve God's forgiveness. But he still goes to God anyway. The language he uses here is actually quite revealing because he's actually using the language of Exodus chapter 34. Uh, it should be on your screens. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Can you see how closely the language is uh, between the Exodus passage and the Psalms here? You see, David knows that the God he worships is the same God who revealed to Moses his very name and character. And this God, Exodus tells us, is the God whose covenant love is so devoted, so tender, so faithful, so central to who he is. And on that basis, we plead for mercy. And that brings us to our third phrase. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Create in me a clean heart, O God. David builds on his plea in verses 7 to 12. Have a quick look through those verses, verses 7 to 12. And notice their urgency. Purge me, wash me, create in me, renew a right spirit within me, cast me not away, restore to me, uphold me. All action words, all actions that God has to do. David knows just how deeply sin reaches into his soul. Verse 5, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, he's not blaming his mother here. He's not saying that he was conceived because his mother was in some inappropriate sexual relationship. What he's saying is that from the very beginning of existence, he is sinful. It touches every part 
of his being. A couple of years ago, Toyota had to recall millions of their cars because they had defects, which caused the cars to behave in ways original, uh, contrary to their original design. And instead of assuring the safety of their passengers, they endangered their passengers. Well, verse 5 here teaches that we have a fundamental defect, one that endangers us in the most significant way possible. We don't just need a quick trip to the mechanic. We need a radical overhaul. We need the truth that God delights in, verse 6. And we need the wisdom, that is, the moral insight and skill that God alone gives. We have to go back to the grand designer for a complete makeover. And that's why we should cry out along with David. Have mercy on me, purge me, wash me, create in me, renew within me. Look at those cries again. David's crying for purification. Verse 7. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. What's hyssop? Well, hyssop was a plant that was used in purification ceremonies for the unclean, such as lepers. And David knows that his his heart is as unclean as any leper. And he needs, verse 10, a clean heart and a right spirit. He wants all that dirt to be washed away, verse 9, where God will never ever see it again. David's crying for restoration. Verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Or look at verse 8. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. He's saying, Lord, my bones are crushed. My spirit is brought low. But please, please let me rediscover the joy of forgiveness, of knowing you once again. David's crying for reassurance. Verse 11. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. David remembers how the Spirit of the Lord anointed Saul to be king. But when Saul sinned, God took away his spirit from him. And so ended his days a pathetic man, a shell of himself, a rebel against God. And that memory scares David and it drives him to God to plead with him not to do the same to him. He cries with desperation, with longing, with brokenness. But he's also crying with confidence. Verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken heart. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. David has humbled himself before the Lord. And he's confident that God will be merciful to him. Well, that leads us on to our fourth phrase, which is found in verse 19. Then will you delight in right sacrifices. Then will you delight in right sacrifices. 
I hope that as you've been listening to this sermon so far, you've been feeling a little dissatisfied. I hope that you notice that something has been strangely missing. Or rather, someone has been missing. Because without him, you haven't really understood Psalm 51. I hope that with every tearful confession, every heartfelt plea, every desperate cry, you've been driven more and more to him. For every word of this psalm cries out for Jesus. Every plea of Psalm 51 can find its answer only in Jesus. Every need of Psalm 51 finds its resolution only in Jesus. Because without Jesus, can Psalm 51 be anything more than the cry of a broken man? Without Jesus, wouldn't Psalm 51 just point us in the direction of hopelessness rather than hope? Without Jesus, wouldn't Psalm 51 simply remind us how dirty we are? Yes, Psalm 51 is about true godly repentance. Verse 16 and 17 tells us that, that God values a humble and repentant attitude above all. Verse 16, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. A heart that is not broken or contrite will rob the sacrifices of its meaning. Those sacrifices are useless. But that doesn't mean that sacrifices don't matter anymore. That doesn't mean that saying sorry is enough. How do we know that? Just look at verse 19 with me, where David obviously thinks that the sacrificial system still matters to God. Verse 19, he says, Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then booze will be offered on your altar. You see, the Old Testament sacrificial system is there in a limited way to remind us of the horror of our sin and the grace of our God. Sacrifice without repentance is of no use, but repentance still needs sacrifice. Blood must be shed for atonement to happen, for forgiveness to be offered. But for the sin of adultery and murder, which are the sins that David committed, there is no atonement provided for in the Old Testament. There is only death. There is only despair. That's David's dilemma. Are you beginning to see how this psalm cries out for Jesus? No animal could atone for his sin. David's broken heart on its own could not atone for his sin. But we begin to see the shape of the one person who can atone for him. When David talks about hyssop, I think that the Passover is also on his mind. He remembers that God struck down every firstborn son in judgment, except for those who painted their door frames with hyssop dip in the blood of the Passover lamb. David understood that though he was a sinner, he also has God's covenant promises. 
And so he looks back and trusts in those promises, which we now know to be ultimately fulfilled by Jesus. His words hint at what we now know in its fullness, that in Christ, the true Passover lamb, we have been cleansed. We have been washed by his blood. You see, Jesus provides all that we need. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He promises never to leave our presence. He pours out his Holy Spirit abundantly. He transforms us into new creations. He is the only sufficient sacrifice that is able to answer the prayer of Psalm 51. When we pray Psalm 51, we must run to Jesus at the same time. Some of you are feeling the wake of your past sins today. As you face up to your darkest deeds, you're paralyzed. Psalm 51 says, Go to God with a broken and contrite heart. Don't deny your sins. Don't minimize your sins. But don't be afraid of them. Don't be afraid, but come to God because of these words from 1 Corinthians chapter 6 on the screen. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, no adulterers, no male prostitutes, no homosexual offenders, no thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. My friends, the blood of Jesus washes away even the most stubborn of sins. That is the gospel. And that leads us to our final phrase. My mouth will declare your praise. My mouth will declare your praise. Look at verse 13. Then, David says, I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Now, Patrick Reynolds is the grandson of a tobacco company owner. His father and his brother died of smoking-related illnesses. He was a smoker himself for 10 years, and he finally quit after 5 years of trying. Having been rescued from smoking, his mission in life now is to warn others of the dangers of smoking and to try to help them to quit. And he once said, I consider myself the white sheep of the family. Well, David says, if I've been cleansed, if I've been made a white sheep of God's family, if I know forgiveness, if I know joy now, then how can it not be my mission in life just to help others to turn back to God? To know him. He has to overflow with praise after praise. 
Verse 14. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. It's natural for kids to praise their heroes. It's natural for lovers to praise one another. It's natural for writers to praise their muses, their inspirations. If they kept it in, they would feel frustrated, wouldn't they? And it's only natural for those of us who have tasted mercy and forgiveness and joy to sing and declare and affirm how amazing Jesus is. And then in verse 18, David prays a prayer that seems to come right out of the blue. Verse 18, he says, Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then booze will be offered on your altar. And you're thinking, how come he's suddenly talking about Zion and Jerusalem here? Well, when we enlarge our vision, this will begin to make sense. You see, David is the king of God's people. And Jerusalem is the center of national and spiritual life for God's people. It was the city of God. And when Jerusalem prospers, that means that God's favor is with his people. And that also means that his name will be glorified in all the earth. David wants to see God's name glorified. He wants to see the people of God truly worshipping God, for them to offer sacrifices and worship in the right way. So when he prays for the walls of Jerusalem to be built up, what he's really doing is he's putting God's priorities first. He's putting God's kingdom first. When we've been transformed by God's grace, when he's put a new spirit in us, then we no longer live for ourselves. We live for God's kingdom. We will use our money, our time, our resources, the way that God wants us to, not the way we want to. We are no longer kings of our own lives because Jesus is our king now. We will long for the new Jerusalem, for the day when God's people will worship him rightly and joyously. As we finish, just turn with me, if you will, to Revelation chapter 7, starting from verse 13. It should be on page 1240 of your church Bibles. Revelation chapter 7, starting from verse 13, page 1240. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these? Clothed in white robes. And from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne 
will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Let's pray.